All right, fellas, why don't we go ahead and start. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so we are passing now to our section on anthropology and establishing an adequate anthropology, which enca- which encapsulates also uh, the reality of sexual difference and the sacramental worldview. Um, the body matters and sexual difference matters. In fact, as we're going to see, if you get rid of that, you in a certain sense get rid of the basis of of a lot of revelation, and a lot of it will end up not making sense. So we're going to just start with very basic anthropology. If you remember, last semester, or last year, we looked at it uh, in our Introduction to Morals class, that we couldn't understand how the human should act unless we understood who the human was. And if you want to review, you can go back to lessons 19 and 20. But what I want to do now, and over the course of the at least coming few classes, and I guess in a certain sense the rest of the semester, is to focus more on the anthropology present in John Paul II's uh, man and woman he created them, which we'll refer to as that sometimes, but it's commonly known as theology of the body. As I said, the main purpose of that document, that series of catechesis, is to establish an adequate anthropology in order to be able to better clarify and explain humani vitae. And so there are some essential terms, uh, particularly in the beginning of it, and that section that I had y'all read that we're going to look at a little bit more today. And we want to be able to at least try to see all of this, what we're going to talk about today and over the course of the coming days, in light of what we face in the world today, what we've looked at as the status questionis, to put it in dialogue with, if dialogue is possible, with postmodern anthropology by emphasizing the objective reality of the body and the meaning of sexual difference and its import. Uh, And to promote what I mentioned at the end of last class as an anthropology of communion, uh, one that speaks to the human person's desire to be loved and to belong. And so we're going to sort of base it off of these three words that you'll find in the section that I asked you to read in Theology of the Body. Person, gift, and communion. Person, gift, and communion. They're all sort of tied together. Let's look, at, first of all, at the idea of person. We looked at a lot of it last semester, so we're not going to get into it too much today. But basically, the human person, from the word prosopon, which means mask, uh, the person is that human person, at least, a body-soul composite. So Boethius' classical definition um, is defined as the individual substance of a rational nature. And this definition is good, but it sort of focuses on the individuality of the person. Uh, this substance that exists or subsists in itself and is incommunicable. Uh, It is singular and unrepeatable. And in the church's teaching, there are going to be three types of persons, divine persons, 
angelic persons and human persons. And so in a certain sense, the human person is that individual manifestation uh, of the overall metaphysical reality of human nature. And so as a human person, we share human nature. And the human person, though, we looked at it again a lot more last semester, is that composite of body and soul. Not a ghost in the machine, but they both are worked together in one composition. Acknowledging, too, is we're going to see that the body is good. And the human person, like other persons, is separated from other animals, uh, is self-aware and is self-conscious. And this is something that Caravotia talks about a lot uh, in his the, uh, philosophical anthropology. But what, what about, and at least what we've been talking about today, in our under, proper understanding of the human person and in sort of the postmodern rejection of a Christian anthropology, what is the scandal? What is the biggest stumbling block for, I would say, a lot of people uh, for accepting this adequate anthropology? True, but I think it's something else. It's the real stumbling block. Uh, I mean, there are a number of stumbling blocks, but there's one I want to focus on. What comes to mind for me is like uh, either the exceptions to the rule, like disorders or like appeal to certain cases, like rape or something. But it's kind of appeal to like extreme examples. And that, yeah, then you're right. That's going to be sort of in the moral realm, but I'm talking in the anthropological realm. True. I, I, and again, that in a certain sense is the base of everything we've been talking about. Yeah, you can't have anthropology if you don't have metaphysics. Uh, but let me just, well, one more shot. The modern idea of freedom? This is also part of it, but let's just make it, the body, the body is the scandal. The body is the scandal. All that other stuff is great. It can't get, the, the, if you, with, with gender theory and with gender ideology and everything we talked about, as much as we reject metaphysics in the soul, we live in sort of this neo-Gnostic world. The body, creation, humanity is the stumbling block, particularly in the secular nihilistic worldview, where if you deny metaphysics, then ultimately you're going to end up not being able to understand the meaning of the body, so you'll toss that out too. Now again, we sort of established a lot of that by looking at the worldview, but it comes as a result of the technocratic paradigm. Uh, and we're going to look at this a lot when it comes to bioethics. Pope Francis talks about it in Laudato Si, 105 to 114. I'm sure that may be the only part many of you have ever read in Laudato Si, but you should really read it. That and the whole entire document, which we'll talk about later. But see more in bioethics, this idea that everything is read through this, I, uh, this mindset of, of technology, where the body then becomes not part of who we are as a person, but becomes this res extensa. It becomes this object that can be and must be manipulated. We're going to see this. This is, this is the heart of John Paul II's argument against contraception. We'll get to that a little bit later on. 
And so what happened is as a result of not only the advance of technology since the Enlightenment, but also now because of this technocratic paradigm, our relationship to our bodies has changed. We can say that people today no longer say that we are our bodies, in the sense that the body is integral to who we are as persons, but instead we possess our bodies as things, as objects for manipulation. But so we possess it, we can manipulate it, even because it has no inherent meaning, but it ultimately comes down to, or it devolves into, this desire to what I'll call throw off the body. This neo-Gnosticism, this Manichaeism, which sees the body as bad, as not good. There are Marxist influences. Well, here's the body. Here's our, not only our human nature, but our body, which represses my freedom. If I have this biologically male body, but I feel that I want to be a woman, I need to throw that body off so I can be who I am. It becomes what I've heard referred to as a ghost body. Ghost body that, that doesn't really exist. Uh, one of my friends who I was explaining this to, talking to me, he said, you know, the, 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 the focus of Christianity is the incarnation, a body entering in theology through the front door, as John Paul II says, but it seems for this nihilistic worldview, the center is the excarnation. We want to be excarnated, we want out of our bodies. And even, I mean, really want to see this, you get into this kind of crazy stuff with like transhumanism and wanting to put our brains in a computer so that we can live forever. But it's rooted in this dominant anthropology that we'll talk about some this semester, but we're gonna talk about more in, in, um, in bioethics, that what it leads to is this conception, this anthropology, which is prevalent in the United States and in the West as man as a disembodied will. I have this ability to choose, I have freedom as autonomy, and I'm not going to let my body or other bodies restrict that. This is the, the argument from O. Carter Sneed, who teaches over at Notre Dame uh, and wrote this wonderful book last semester on how bioethics in America and the West is all rooted, at least legally from a legal co- construct, in this concept of man and woman as disembodied wills. Now, of course, the irony is, you know, we live in a fairly hedonistic society, but what, what does the body become? I think it's uh, Wendell Berry saw that. The body becomes a tool, an instrument in this industrialized society for pleasure. I will use my body to give myself pleasure and to give other people pleasure. But there's also, as much as we, we, we um, um, see the irony in it, uh, is that there's also this, this obsession with exercise and a desire for eternal youth. But our, our Botox in our face, so we always look young. So we do, in a certain sense, care for our body, and a lot of money is spent into these rituals to care for the body. But regardless, this nihilistic anthropology that we see as part of the skin on the body is not sufficient. We are composed of composite unity of body and the soul. The body is, is crucial for our understanding of the human person.
And what John Paul II does, and we've already sort of looked at this word before, we're going to look at it a lot, he says that the body, in theology of the body, is the sacrament of the person. Remember, the visible sign of an invisible reality. What does he mean by that? He says, quote, our identity and self-consciousness as a human person are expressed in and through our body. Indeed, the body is the primordial sacrament that makes the life and love of God present in the world. Now, he's going to talk marriage is the primordial sacrament, too. But in this this loose sense, it is the visible sign of the invisible reality. And so in our bodies, our, our, our interior states can be revealed. But it's not just the soul. The body reveals the soul. The body reveals the person. And the way that we have that composite union, I reveal myself in my body. When I act in my body, it's not just the acting person. It's not just the acting body or the soul using my body as an instrument. It's myself as that individual substance of a rational nature that exists in relationship that makes present um, this this reality of who I am. Now, we're going to look a lot more about this idea of sacrament, uh, but I do want to make one sort of quick side note. Part of the scandal of the body is the fact that we have a difficult accepting our bodies, what I like to call the givenness of the body. Uh and this is, again, Pope Francis talks about this, is we accept creation as a gift. We accept our existence as a gift. We need to accept our bodies as a gift. He says the acceptance of our bodies as gift is vital for welcoming and accepting the entire world as a gift from the Father and our common home. Whereas thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies turns, often subtly, into thinking we often enjoy absolute power over creation. Learning to accept our body, to care for it and respect its fullest meaning, is an essential element of any genuine human ecology. So we accept our bodies, but we also accept its limitations, the givenness of the body, the genetic makeup that I have. I'm not saying that medical intervention is bad, but we're not going to be able to get rid of pain, get rid of desire, get rid of death get rid of a certain placeness that our body has. If you want to watch a movie this week, I don't know. How many of you all saw Nomadland from a couple years ago with Francis McDormand? That movie is a wonderful meditation on placeness and the meaning of the body. So if you are interested in watching something, I know it's a free weekend. We can discuss that later. But overall, a Christian anthropology, the theology of the body is an affirmation of the goodness of the body. It's part of creation, revealing God's gift, but also with the incarnation. John Paul II says, the body entered theology through the front door. God him at Spes, number 14. Though made of body and soul, man is one. Through his bodily composition, he gathers to himself the elements of the material world. Thus, they reach their crown through him. 
So in a certain sense, all of created reality finds its apex in the human person, created with body and soul. And through him raise their voice in free praise of the creator. For this reason, man is not allowed to despise his bodily life. Rather, he is obliged to regard his body as good and honorable since God has created it and will raise it on the last day. So there's an eschatological dimension here, the final cause, which we'll look at towards the end of the semester. God created the world and saw that it was good as an expression of his gift and his love, and so our body is too. I gave you to read John Paul II's homily upon the re-sort of dedication of the Sistine Chapel in 94. I think that is a wonderful summary of the theology of the body and how he talks about there Michelangelo's, the, the body of the, the risen saints, the body of Christ, which looks almost inhuman, but it shows the spiritual reality sort of breaking through the body. Um, and again, there's the portrayal of nudity there, he describes, which we'll look at a little bit when we talk about pornography, but you can't say that this is some sort of out of context or it is erotic. It is showing the beauty, beauty and the dignity of the body through art. Uh, there's another scene, which again, when we had an hour and 20 minutes for class, I'd show you, uh, but I can post it later today from any of you watched the movie uh, Wings of Desire from the from the late 80s? Uh, there, there's this beautiful scene in there where a character communicates the, the meaning and the beauty of what it means to be in the body. But I'll, I'll put some, some stuff there. But all of this understanding of the body we've had throughout the tradition of the church, but in the past several decades, the one who is really moved it forward uh, to help us understand it better is going to be John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. Now, had you read some of it, and I want to be able to go back to it and refer it because there are some essential terms, that at least that you can look like you know what you're talking about when you're talking to people about this. Like, oh, the Theology of the Body this, and I went to Theology of the Body camp. No. Most of you never read Theology of the Body. If you did read Theology of the Body, you would not want to go to that camp. If you sat and read the, the text itself, you're reading people's interpretations of the text, which may be right or wrong, but regardless. Most of the time when people talk about Theology of the Body, they're talking about what used to be known as the first cycle. The first part where John Paul II looks at primarily Genesis 2 and the creation of Adam and Eve, but also partially the priestly account in Genesis 1. Now, he says there, he draws an historical critical method, and he's not saying we're going to read this as literal. You should know that by now. Uh, he, he's using it, in, as we talked about, to connect to human experience, to read it in that a posteriori fashion. Well, I know what it's like to live in our body now, which is fallen and redeemed, and so I'm going to try to read... Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 in light of that, by sort of looking at the opposite, possibly, of what we encounter, and to construct the ideal of the person uh, as an embodied creature without sin, uh, living in the ability to freely give of his or herself. And so I gave you a certain section to read, uh, which gives you a feel from the text. 
But from that first part, and from what you read, or at least mostly what you read, there are five keywords and phrases which you need to be familiar with. Now, I'm going to refer to them again, uh, but we're not. If I was teaching a class on theology of the body where we read the whole text, we'd really get into this. Uh, but I at least want to give them to you. But focus on the last one, which is the key one that I think is the most important. And the first is the term that he uses, just called the beginning. Remember, Jesus, he goes, John Paul II starts in Matthew 19, um, where the Pharisees ask Jesus about marriage, and Christ makes this reference to the beginning. Yes, Moses allowed divorce for the hardness of your hearts, but in the beginning it was not so. I created the male and female and intended them to stick together. This is for him what he calls the beatifying beginning. Man and woman walking in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Now remember, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is etiological, basically trying to explain why certain things exist in the world uh, as compared to um, a false, more pagan understanding of it. It's what God originally intended, but we've lost because of the fall of Adam and Eve. But yet Christ can return to this and reference. Why can Christ return and reference the beginning and say it's applicable for today? Why can Jesus do that? Why is that? True, but... <laughs> yes, the Paschal Mystery. The bridegroom's going to give his body and blood to the bride on the cross. Redemption. So he's not returning to the beginning. Jesus isn't saying we're going back to the beginning. He, he's not... We're, yeah, it's, it's, like the, it's like the toy that's broken. He's not going to throw it out. He's going to patch it up. He's going to make it even better. You know, it's like Steve Austin and the Six Million Dollar Man. We think we can fix him. He's broken. But we're going we're gonna to make him better than he was before. That is what redemption is about. And so as a result, we can go back to the beginning because Christ is the new Adam. So it's, it's a sort of reconstruction of what we can imagine this body in the beginning was like before the fall. So the second term that he uses, going back to Genesis in this idyllic state, is... I want to make sure I got it right. Original innocence. Original innocence. This is man before the fall in the state of grace, in union with the Lord, but not with the beatific vision. He's just living in the state of grace. There's no sin. He's holy. He is filled with divine life. We also, John Paul II will call this the state of original justice. What is justice? Remember, right relation. Man and woman are walking in harmony with God. There's no sin. There's no insecurity. There was no shame. So they were naked, even though they didn't know it. And although they wouldn't see God, John Paul II talks about this, they wouldn't see God directly in the beatific vision, they see themselves and each other 
as God sees them. They're, they're in a certain sense, uh, living in the, 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 the gaze and the view of God the Father. And that, that, that view shines a certain light where they can see the dignity and value of their body and what their body is meant for and what the other's body is meant for. The creation is a gift. Everything is very, very clear. They're seeing it in the light of God. And as a result, there's no sin. There's nothing to restrain them. And John Paul II will bring this back up when we talk about it. Because that there's no sin, when they give themselves, there's a freedom in the gift. Nobody calls that original freedom of the gift. Although we're going we're gonna to look at this um, a little bit later on uh, and to see why this is important. So that's original innocence. Basically just Adam and Eve before the fall. Adam and Eve before original sin. The next term is one that it's a little more confusing. Now, all of these things that he's describing, he'll call about, uh, or he'll refer to as original experience. What the experience, or what we might imagine, the experience of Adam and Eve, or these, these, these ideal uh, humans, what they may have experienced in their body. The next is original solitude. Original solitude. If you read the text closely, John Paul II will say that there are two meanings to original solitude. Anybody who read it want to tell me what the two meanings are? It's it's you got to kind of read the text closely. But I'll call the first one metaphysical. I think it's probably the best word. Maybe there's another word I'll find that's better for it. It's basically, so remember, whenever in the Genesis 2, man is created as Adam. Adam. And he's part of creation, and he's there to name all of creation. But ultimately, he realizes that he's not like the other animals and creatures that he's naming. He can't give himself to those creatures. And so he, he, he has this self-consciousness that in his humanity, in his human nature, he is alone before God. He's different from the rest of creation in relationship to God. He's unique. The only creature who is capable of gift, the only creature who who is capable of self-consciousness. And of course, as we know, God says, let's let's draw, let's make a woman, a a helper, helpmate suitable for him. And then now he is the original solitude is the second is in relation to woman. Our relation to Eve, as she will later be named. He is before, I guess in a certain sense, 
before her creation, he, he, he's alone. He, he can't give himself to the animals. He realizes that he, I guess in a certain sense you could say in this horizontal plane, is alone. So he can't give of himself. And that's why God creates woman, so he can overcome this horizontal solitude. But even then, when Eve is created, and he is no longer alone in that sense, he, ha- he shares this uh, original unity with Eve, both man and woman still experience original solitude. Why? Because, well, yeah, they're the, yeah well, they're, they're the only ones that can know God. And so in a certain sense, all of us who are human experience a certain original solitude because we realize that we can't enter into communion with animals and stuff like that. But yet the original solitude of the fact that I have a body that is a male body can now be overcome because he sees woman as flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And then the next experience that he talks about is original nakedness, which the... the Genesis 2 and 3 make a point of that man and woman are created without clothes on. It shows the dignity and the beauty of their body. They can see themselves as God sees them. And as a result, this nakedness and the freedom they experience allows them to express perfectly the interiority of the person. There's no problem of them expressing what they're feeling or experience a person in their body to others. Their body language is perfect. Their higher spiritual, personal faculties uh, have control over the body. It works in harmony. And again, he sees himself as God sees himself, as sees him, in the original fullness of vision, and understands, particularly in front of Eve, that his body and her body are meant for gift, are meant for communion. Hey, wait a second. We're going, we need it. This is the these parts work. This is what we're meant for here. We're, we're bone of bone and flesh of flesh. And so as a result, and this will become important later, there's no shame. There's no hiding the body. There's no, oh, look, you're not a threat to me. God sees me. I see you. I see you and myself as God sees us. It's great. And so there is this ability to make the community of persons freer. If I'm hiding myself, I see you as a threat or God as a threat, I'm not free. I don't fully understand who I am. And so a lot of it, he'll use shame and the experience of what shame is, which he also writes about in Love and Responsibility, to help us better understand what a body might be like without shame, where we can be naked without any type of shame. The next term that he uses, the fifth term, is original unity. Now this is, I mean, sort of a complicated term because once again, he means two things. And he kind of goes back and forth in the way he explains it. 
The first is the unity in human nature. They're both male and female, but they both share the same human nature. But the other meaning, and the one we're going to focus on here, is overcoming solitude in the community of persons, in the one flesh union. The reciprocal acceptance of the other is good. So you can, he'll call it the unity of the two. And then the other one is in humanity. So original unity implies to degree that that gift of self in the the marital act, which although it's not explicit, it is implied there. So these are five key terms that John Paul II uses to describe the original state. But it's the next term that for me is the most important. And the one we're going to come back to over and over and over again, which I believe is correct in, is the spousal meaning of the body. You already see that there's no, there's no nihilistic anthropology. The body has a meaning that has been inscribed into it by God and that we as humans are able to be able to understand. And so we've already talked about the, the giftedness of creation, that we can see creation as a gift revealing God's love and the part of the sacramental vision. But man and woman in themselves and their bodies realize not only that their bodies are gifts, but they are able to give of themselves. If they embody the gift, they are there called to create, they are created for gift. This is all part of that whole hermeneutics of the gift of understanding everything through this lens. John Paul II says, man appears in the visible world as the highest expression of the divine gift because he bears within himself the inner dimension of gift. While all of creation, in a certain sense, shows God's gift, the, uh, because there's no self-consciousness, because they're not persons, you know, Cats can't give of themselves. You know, oranges and apples can't give of themselves. They're not persons. They're not even animate beings. But we, created in the image and likeness of God, can give of ourselves, meaning that we were created for gift. We're created to give of ourselves in our body. And we can understand this because this meaning of gift is written into our very bodies. The body is meant for gift. How do we understand that? How do we, how, how do we come to know, or how would Adam and Eve, the original man and woman, come to know that the body is meant for gift? The what? Well, no, they would have known that before that, before the command to be fruitful and multiply. When? Absolutely, sexual difference. Ooh, I may not have named this, but I know my body is like yours, but it's also not like yours. You know, the pieces fit, and we get it, and we know what happens. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. 
he sees the similarity in the body, but he also sees the complementarity, even though we're going to kind of dispute that word a little bit later on, that, hey, I can give myself to her. My, my body is aimed as a telos. It's ordered towards her, and her body, in the receptive dimension, as it were, is ordered towards mine. And they are, are able to see themselves and their bodies as God sees them. So it's going to be pretty easy for them to understand before the fall that they're meant, meant for each other. Theology of the body, this is, I'm going I'm to go back to this 14. So 14 is the 14th catechesis, and it's the fourth chapter, paragraph. What I just explained, I'm going to let John Paul II explain in a much more complicated way. <laughs> the body, which expresses femininity for masculinity, and vice versa, masculinity for femininity, manifests the reciprocity and the community of persons. We're going to get into this next time. It expresses it through gift as the fundamental characteristic of personal existence. This is the body, a witness to creation as a fundamental gift, and therefore a witness to love as the source from which this same giving springs. Masculinity, femininity, namely sex, even though he doesn't really make a distinction between sex and gender here, is the original sign of a creative donation, and at the same time, the sign of the gift that man, male and female, becomes aware of gift, lives, so to speak, in an original way. So wait a second, whoa, I don't have a name for it. We're both humans, we both share this, our bodies, but they're different. And we can understand in that sexual difference and the fact that man has a penis, woman has a vagina, whoa, wait, this works together. We have this attraction. And that they can give themselves to each other in their bodies. So if again, if there is the compliment, the, 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 the sexual difference, and we realize that there's gift there, that this act of coming together is about self-gift expressed in the bodies as an expression of love. Phrasing it in a different way, John Paul II says that spousal meaning is the power to express love precisely, that love in which the human person becomes gift, and through this gift fulfills the very meaning of his being and existence. So if we're going to go back to this idea that we're created for gift and creation is a gift, it's a gift given out of love. And so if we are created for gift and our body shows we're created for gift, pouring ourselves out, receiving and giving back and receiving, then we're meant for love. And our bodies and its ability to give and love reflects God who is gift and love. Yes? Maybe kind of a jerk question. Sure. Um, so what, what's the, I know that doesn't, I, I'm saying it, that, I don't mean like, no, no, it, like, so all, so I know, so my, my, my response before, you know, I want some help from you is, well, yeah, because all of creation is set up this way, that, that's the whole idea, so what makes, so, so to me, my, my, my problem at this point and not fully understanding is, all right, well, all the animal kingdom that has sexual reproduction, also their bodies also 
represent uh, this idea of gift. So is it really the body that makes us unique? No, it's not. What's the answer to this? I've kind of implied this, yeah. Exactly, it's a consciousness of the gift. Animals are just reproducing. We are procreating. So I'm making, I'm not a slave to my passions. There's sexual attraction, but the human person realizes, wait a second, I am created for gift and I can make a willed choice to give myself. Persons can give themselves. Animals just do bodily things. Because I'm a person, because I have a self-consciousness and a self-awareness, and this is really important in love and responsibility and person and act, I am an acting person. I can make a choice. And so this thing that I do in my body is not just some bodily reaction, but it's actually me choosing to give myself as a gift. And not just partial gift, total gift. In the marital act, but as we'll see in other areas too. And so as a result, before the, does that make sense? I'm a person, I'm choosing to do this in my body. Your dog doesn't do that, it just follows instinct. And there's nothing to restrain before the fall. There's the freedom of the gift. Now, while we're talking about this in the beginning in this very mystical way, it is implicitly referring to the one flesh union. Spousal means marriage. Now, he's, he's alluding to marriage here, but it means gift for him. The, the spouse means the, body, means the body is meant for gift, and technically the body is meant for marriage. However, it is not limited to marriage and sex. Important to, re- to realize that. Spousal meaning that means the person in general is meant for gift. Hold on a second. I'm trying to do this a little differently here. The person in general is meant for gift. Not, it's not limited to genital expression. So in the marital act and the general expression, oh, I give of myself. And this is sort of what in recognizing the body and the gift of the body is what John Paul II is alluding to here. But our our masculinity, our femininity plays a part in the gift, but as we'll see, as important sexual difference is, that gift is much broader than something which is purely genital or something which is purely physical. It could be, I give myself in service to another, but I do it in my body. I participate in society by voting and by being a part of the community. I'm giving myself. Almsgiving, a simple smile. These are all expressions of the gift of self, but they are all the person, something deeper, expressing itself through the body. And we're all called to to live this in our daily lives, including celibates. Celibacy is the gift of self and the body in a non-genital way. But you're still giving yourself as a male. Sisters are still giving themselves as females. Ways to give ourselves to each other outside of the spousal gift of marriage. And so, again, in marriage, if that's the only way you choose to give yourself, or if you're doing it for just your pleasure and not gift of self, you're not making that choice, then we got a problem. But regardless, we are giving ourselves and loving, not as purely spiritual beings, but as human persons with bodies. Now also to note, and John Paul II will mention this, if I say we're meant for gift, the gift of self or anyone giving, what's the opposite? Receiving. Receiving. 
were also meant for receptivity. Not just receiving their bodies, but receiving them as persons. So in the male body, the male gives of himself, pours himself out. The, the, the female, the wife, receives that gift, but she gives herself back too. This gift and receptivity inherent in the body is going to become crucial and important, as John Paul II says, in deriving an ethos of the body. So if there is a spousal meaning of the body, the body is meant for total self-gift and receptivity, then guess what? There is an ought that has come from that. And it's going to underpin most of our, our sexual morality. If I choose not to give of myself and just to take or to treat another person not as a person but as an object for my own sexual pleasure, we've got an ethical problem because there is inherent meaning in the body. Now, there's another meaning of the body, and I'm going to go quickly through this, is what he calls the procreative or generative meaning of the body. That we can also see that the body is meant for gift, but it's also meant for life. Not just spiritual, but physical. He's going to develop this in the knowledge and procreation cycle. The body is meant for gift, but the body is also meant for fruitfulness. Why is this important? And and I'm going to go back to this over and over again. I've already alluded to it. John Paul II takes the unitive and procreative aspects of the marital act that Paul VI expresses in Humanae Vitae, and which is the consistent teaching of the church, but develops it. He doesn't reject it, but develops it by anchoring them into the body. This is sort of the example is personalism. You should not contracept not only because you separate the unitive and procreative aspects of the act, but you should not contracept because you're denying the spousal and generative meanings of the body. You believe this is something that, that we can see is written into our body. It's an aspect of our, our natural inclinations. So I think this is one of the, the new things that John Paul II tries to do is, is connect natural law theology with personalism by taking these two things and putting them in the body. And truthfully, it's, it's, it's effective. But finally, let's go in the last 10 minutes that we have to the last part. We've seen person, we spent a lot of time on gift, and now we need to talk about communion. We know that as persons, we are defined, are able to exist in relation to another person. We're social beings. And so what happens is the gift of self leads to the communion of persons. Now, in a certain sense, there is a communion and the unity of the two shared by our common human nature, the unity, but it's also in the conjugal act. The visible gift, the visible act spoken in the language of the body talks about the gift of self. But what happens is that from that gift of self comes the communion, the the one flesh unity of the couple. He talks about that, the one flesh union, communion. Now, again, it doesn't have to be sexual or bodily. I mean, in a certain sense, it's always going to be bodily. There's the broader community of love, the family, the church. 
But all of this is the development of Gaudium and Spes 24. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, when he prayed to the Father that they all may be one as we are one, opened up vistas closed to human reason. For he implied a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons and the unity of God's sons in truth and charity. This likeness reveals that man, who is the only creature on earth which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through the sincere gift of self. So we've got to give of ourselves to find ourselves, but it's not just a gift to nowhere. It's a gift to another person. God, Jesus, spouse, friends, the church. There's a receptivity, and from that comes the communion of persons. With God, with others, as we see this communion of persons between man and woman, and of course the larger communion, is the foundation of the Imago Dei. But this is the end point, and I think in sort of closing, what I, I want you all to reflect upon it's an anthropology of gift and self-donation. It's an anthropology of love, but it's ultimately an anthropology of communion. So in light of the crisis of identity in the body, theology of the body is helpful, showing the importance of the body, that the body reveals the person, that it has an inherent meaning. This is the, the sacramental matrix that we put to understand a proper anthropology. And it's done through gift of self and love that love is important. But when we give ourselves, we're, we're looking for communion. We're looking to give of ourselves, but we're also looking to be received. I know that's kind of a, a, a mystery there. I love you, and I give myself to you. I don't expect anything back, but in giving myself, if you receive it, I know that there's going to be a deeper communion. That can be expressed in broken ways, but all of us have that desire for communion. And to promote this idea, hey, you were meant for gift, but more important, you were meant to, to live in love with others. All this fighting and strife and isolation, this is a great way to overcome this epidemic we face of isolation and loneliness. So I, I think as much as we could say, hey, you have a dignity, you're a human person, great. You have meaning inherent in your body. Wonderful. But what really speaks to people is you were meant for communion. Love and union with others. Not only in marriage, and your bodies show that, but in general, we're called, in the image and likeness of God, to image God, who, as we'll see, is a communion of persons. And this is where John Paul II will push it even further in saying, yeah, we've had this traditional belief in the Imago Dei, but we've got to be able to see now the Imago Dei, not just in the, the rational creature, but in the community of persons, man and woman together with the child coming forth, the family, but also in, in, as a church, a society, as a brotherhood, we're imaging the Trinity. So it's that we're we're going to get into that in a couple of lessons, but we are meant for communion with God and with others. How to best communicate that, this anthropology of communion? Well, there are going to be different ways, um, but this is the heart of the truth. We're made for gift, 
but ultimately we're made for loving communion with God and with others. So, moving to our next lesson, which will be on Friday, this first part of the anthropology is we're meant for communion. We're meant for gift of self. But all of this implies sexual difference. The binary of man and woman created together in the image and likeness of God, which is another stumbling block. Not only is the body a stumbling block, but the sexually differentiated binary, which restricts us in a certain sense, but yet is the expression of the person, and as we'll see, is integral to understanding the Imago Dei. So we're going to spend some time not only on the biological and maybe a little bit on the sociological level to understand the meaning of sexual difference, but we're going to see its deeper metaphysical meaning. What, what, what does sexual difference, be created male and female, teach us, reveal to us, and reveal to others? So we'll spend some time exploring that and, and giving the basis of if you get rid of sexual difference, and its revelatory meaning, what do you ultimately get rid of? From a Christian Catholic perspective. Besides, you get rid of sexual differences, we can't reproduce and we all die as a, as a species. Yes. But hey, we don't even really need sexual difference. Just, we have test tube babies. It's a, it's a brave new world. Not that I'm advocating that. But from, from the Catholic perspective, you get rid of sexual difference, what do you get rid of? Huh? Yeah. I mean, we can, I can still be in communion with y'all as guys. We're all together. So, yeah. Yes. Identity. Identity yeah. I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm thinking meta here. It's meta. We're meta. Daniel, be meta. Huh? Okay. Well, that's not super meta. It is. But. All right. One more shot. Yes, but no. All right, I'm going to tell you. All right. You, well, you sort of get rid of the image of God, but we're going to see you get rid of the spousal analogy. Now, granted, yes, we, we, we believe it's the body, but the analogy of man and woman of marriage, if you don't have that, you cannot fully understand Christ and the church. You can't do it. So it's right at the beginning, it's at the end of Revelation, and it's in the middle. You can use other analogies, but the fact of the matter is, Song of Songs, Ephesians 5, this, the prophets, we're going to see it, is all through Scripture. It's all through Revelation. So if we're going to have a biblical moral theology, and we're going to believe in Revelation, and all of a sudden you say that the body doesn't matter, male and female doesn't matter, they're not meant for each other, then... What do we do with this key analogy that God has used throughout history to reveal his love for humanity? There are other analogies, too. But you that's the thing. Truth is symphonic. You pull one part out, there's a good chance, it's like a big Jenga puzzle. The rest is going to fall down. So we don't want the Jenga tower to fall, but we'll look at that later. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.